0: Hi and welcome back, I'm Patrick Polk and you're listening to The Rules of Investing. This week's episode will be hosted by Livewire co-founder and executive director, James Marley, and his guest is Nick Griffin, founder and chief investment officer of Munro Partners. Nick has over 20 years experience in the investment industry, including five years working for Deutsche Bank in Edinburgh and more than 10 years as Head of International Equities at K2 Asset Management before launching Munro Partners three years ago. They'll discuss what it truly means to be a growth investor, how to tell the structural winners from the structural losers, and Nick shares the most exciting growth prospect he's come across recently. Finally, if you're loving the rules of investing, then why not tell someone about it? Pick your favorite episode and send it to a friend or just head on over to iTunes and hit subscribe. Either way, you're helping to increase the profile of the podcast and therefore the quality of the guests that I can bring to you. Well, that's it for now. I hope you enjoy the show.
1: I know you went full hands-on and did a a year-long trial of Amazon Prime as part of your research on a stock that you've talked about a few times. You feel like it's a long-term structural growth winner. What's the strangest item that you bought and had delivered using Amazon Prime?
2: Yeah, look, the Amazon story is a good one. I mean, look, um, as you know from my background at my previous firm, I, I ran money globally in Australia, but I also went back to the UK and ran money there for a while. Part for family reasons. And the Amazon thing happened in the UK. Um, so when I went back to the UK, 2013, Amazon, it's very hard for Australians to understand how Amazon works because we're not really an Amazon country. Amazon's here, but it's not really here in the way it is in the UK or the US or parts of Germany, etc. And the Amazon Prime offering is to deliver anything you want for free within 48 hours. And so after, a, when you live in the UK, it's very hard to get around. It's hard to get to shops, it's hard to get parks. And so I started, we started using the service quite aggressively in 2013. And I just kept pushing how far I could use it. And so in answer to your question, um, yeah, I ordered a of toothpaste to see if it would turn up. Um, but the key thing about what was great about the service and what is great about the service outside of Australia is the 48 hours. So after a while, you get to trust it. Um, so we would order fishing hooks uh, before the weekend fishing trip, so you don't have to stop and get them. Um, if your kid's got a dress up party, you could order a dress up costume, knowing that it would arrive in the 48 hours. And that customer service offering made you believe in the, that it would work and then that the fact that it would work created the network effect that amazon was looking for and that's what's made them successful in, in all these countries around the world today
1: and given that it's a company that you own and you follow very clo- closely what's your expectation for the level of service that we might get in australia from amazon
2: look uh, so so we've said this we've had this conversation a lot ever since we started the fund you know so there used to be this big beat up that amazon was coming to australia and Amazon said they were coming to Australia but but the Amazon service requires a distribution center. That's how it works. To get any item you want delivered within 48 hours, you need a really big distribution
1: center. They're not fish really sitting magically in the cloud above yeah,
2: us. Yeah, no. And so and that's how that's how it works. And so the truck just does a loop from this one distribution center and there was one about 40 miles from my house in in the UK. And so the truck just loops back every every couple of every every day. And so you can order stuff every day and it turns up the next day. In Australia, you won't get that service until they build the distribution centre. Uh, These distribution centres take up roughly 14 football fields. Uh, They cost roughly a billion dollars. They employ roughly 30,000 people each. Amazon has over 150 of these around the world today. And so if Amazon was investing heavily in Australia, we would have noticed by now Mm. because they would need roughly four or five to service Sydney, four or five to service Melbourne. That's what the standard city in the US has. And, and we haven't seen them spending that type of money or building that. So the Amazon Prime service, as you know it offshore, is, is not going to arrive in Australia until they do it. Mm.
1: Do you feel like the Aussie players like um, Woolworths and Coles are actually better positioned to deliver a service like that?
2: I think they're very well positioned because they can go offshore and see what level they need to be at. Mm. Um, and so Australia is, is quite lucky in the fact that If you look at Amazon, and we've got a map in our deck that shows where all these distribution centers are, and so of the 150 plus, 95% of them are in the US and Europe. Um, So Amazon is actually only really in two two major areas. And then for the rest of the world that they've gone to Target, they've gone to Japan, Singapore, and India. And that seems fairly obvious. Um, And would Australia be next on their list? Probably not. Um, It's probably Latin America, more India, et cetera, et cetera. So, So what an Australian retailer can do, can just go and go to my house in the UK or go to any other house in the US and just see the level that is going to be required at some point and the level that they will need to get to if they want to compete with an Amazon. And they've got time to set it up. And some of them are doing it and some of them are.
1: I'm not one for labels and, and, and styles and all this sort of stuff with investing. I think it often can get a bit too complicated. But your, the way that you think about um, picking stocks is you're trying to find growth stocks. You talk, call yourself a growth manager. What does it mean to be a growth manager? And why are you um, obsessed or why have you decided that that's how you want to invest? Why, why is it growth for you? Yeah,
2: so look, so my growth investing background comes probably from the way I started in the industry. Um, so I started back when there used to be balance funds, if that makes sense. You could work on the bond desk, on the FX desk, on the equity desk. Equities is a different asset class to all the other ones. So all the other ones sort of mean revert to a certain extent and all the other ones, um, you know, you can make a certain amount of money and you have to bank it if that makes sense. Equities is different. Equities is a game of stocks that can go up thousands of percent yet they can only fall a hundred. And so it's asymmetrically in your favor to own equities. The problem is more fall a hundred than go up a thousand. And then to find the ones that go up a thousand, they're invariably always growth equities at some point. And so those growth equities, yes, there are turnaround stories and other stuff, but invariably it's around growth. And equities are companies that, that benefit from the structural change that's happening all around us all the time. Um, and if you can identify that, then you can win. And so the beauty of equities, and particularly growth equities, but equities in particular, the, the information dissymmetry between the, the participants is so much bigger than it would be in, say, the bond or the foreign exchange market, because there's so many different variables at play. Which allows you to go down these rabbit holes and find these great investments, and that's what that's what makes it fun.
1: Mm. Do you think the um, the invest the, the the economic backdrop? And I know you, you're not one for trying to predict where interest rates are going and where markets are going and all that sort of stuff. But we are in this lower growth environment and lower growth backdrop. Do you think that that is just the, the main differentiator between? value and growth and why growth is having a good time and value is is struggling? Is it just that economic growth that's struggling?
2: To a certain extent, so so let's start with the interest rate question. So interest rates are low, that helps growth investing. Okay, I'm I'm on board with that, I understand that. Um, We're looking at longer duration assets, the lower discount rate is better. If the discount rate was to turn around and start going up, then for a period of time, growth would underperform. I'm on board with that, that logic. But I would, I would disagree that growth and value can go in and out of fashion, if that makes sense. So, so someone once asked me that question, and I said, yeah, you're right. You know, Mark Zuckerberg sat in his, his dorm room and created an internet site that turned into a $500 billion company within the space of 12 years. And that was all because interest rates went from 5% to 1%. And the answer is no, that's not what happened. Um, the same with Google, the same with Amazon, the same with some of the healthcare companies we look at. When you're investing in growth equities, you're basically investing in innovation. And we happen to be living in a time of wonderful innovation. Um, part of that's due to Moore's law and the increasing computing power of computers. Part of that's due to digitalization and the ability for information to move across the world. And so this period of innov- innovation is also happening at the same time while growth equities are doing well. And I'd argue that's as much to do with it as interest rates have been in the last 10 to 15 years as well.
1: Mm. I was looking on your website, And you've got some some articles written um, about a a concept called the S-curve. Yep. Um, For someone that's hearing about it for the first time, explain what the S-curve is and why you care about it.
2: So yeah, when we're looking at growth equities, and maybe I'll just backtrack a bit, you're always looking for structural growth, if that makes sense. So so economic growth will continue along at 2% to 3%. Maybe it's lower, maybe it's slightly higher. And your standard steel or paper company will continue to grow at that sort of rate. Sometimes it'll be a good buy, sometimes it'll be a good sell. And that's stuff that value managers and other managers do, and we leave that to them. They're very good at it. It's just not our bag. Um, We're looking for structural growth, So, so ultimately, put really simply, if the earnings of the company can grow consistently over a long period of time, I'm reasonably sure their share price will grow consistently over a long period of time. And so if I can find those structural growth trends, I can find that earnings growth. If I find that earnings growth, I'll find the stocks that I should be investing in. And that's just the very simple way we think about it. All an S-curve is is working out where you are on that structural transition. And so the simple one for people to get their head around would be digital payments because everyone knows and understands it. And so in my lifetime and in yours, we've gone from using 100% cash to using probably less than 20% cash in our day-to-day lifetime. And that traveled over an S-curve. You started using card, and as card got easier, you started using it a lot more. And so when we see Visa, Visa uses this great stat and says the first two years of tap and go in Australia, it got 7% penetration. In the next two years, it got 60% penetration. And in the last two years, it got the last 20%. iPhone, smartphone adoption went along an S-curve. And so all you're doing is you're trying to work out the size of a market the size of the structural opportunity and where you are on that structural opportunity. I.e., are we at the start, the middle, or the end of the S curve, and that will give you the guide as to where you are in the earnings growth trajectory, which will allow you to find out which stocks can be the best, are most likely to benefit.
1: And how hard is it to figure out whether you're at the at, at the midpoint or at the end point of um you know of that that penetration within a structural growth opportunity? Because I imagine. You talk about your, people own stocks and it goes up three times and you think, wow, I've done amazingly well, and then you sell it and then it goes up another 10 times and you're like, I wish I'd known.
2: Yeah, and I think, um, and I think that's, that's, that's the most important bit. Um, and so, so the, how you find out it goes back to what I said earlier. So equities is, there's, all this, there's a lot of idiosyncratic opportunities um, and there's a lot of information that you can get just purely by doing a bit of hard work or purely by going and asking people. So... So let's continue the digital payments discussion. So when you speak to Visa, and they will tell you, because they've got the data, um, Australia is the second second most penetrated company of tap-and-go payments in the world today. Uh, The number one is Sweden. Uh, But we are roughly over 80% of face-to-face transactions are now tap-and-go in Australia. And that's how it all happened in the space of four or five years. Um, The US is below 10% today. The global average is 30%. Uh, You could also, if you want, take up entire entire face-to-face cash payments and add up Visa, Mastercard and PayPal's share of that and you'll work out that it's less than 40% today. And so we would argue they're roughly halfway through their S-curve today. Now, that's not an exact science, obviously, and eventually it runs out and that happens to companies like Apple with smartphones or or sort of happened to Facebook to a certain extent with digital advertising in the last 12 months. But ultimately, um, it's about working out how big the opportunity is what their share is, and then you get a reasonable estimate as to where you are in that transition. And then obviously you have to think about the competitive threats along the way also, but that's sort of how we do it.
1: So you've talked through uh, a couple of examples there. In your eyes, um, I'll get you to give me one, like, or you can give me a couple, but I want to know what's the most compelling structural growth um, area that you've discovered? You're out there turning over, you know, kicking the stones, trying to find these ideas. What's the one that really, um, you know, blows your hair
2: back at the moment? Yeah, look, it's without doubt, it's um, in cloud computing and the shift to software. Um, that's by far the biggest bet in our fund and has been now for over 18 months. Put it simply, okay, so go back to my example before about GDP tickling along at 3%. So global IT spending grows at roughly 1% to 3% per annum. Um, and that's split software, hardware, IT services, data center, etc. And those are the, those are the really four main components. Um, With the adoption of cloud computing, you would know in your business and everyone would know in everyone else's business that a whole bunch of that pie you don't need to spend money on anymore. So you don't need to buy a server anymore because you can host it in the cloud. Uh, You don't need to buy IT support anymore because you're buying software as a service through the cloud, which essentially updates through the cloud. You don't need to spend even as much money on hardware because you're running a device agnostic business. A lot of us can actually run our businesses off our telephones now if we wanted to, all through the web. And that's all being enabled by cloud computing. Great examples here are obviously Amazon Web Services and Microsoft, but Microsoft's the one everyone else understands because a lot of us have now moved to a subscription with Microsoft on Microsoft 365, which is great uh, for us and great for Microsoft because all they're doing is taking share from those other parts of the IT stack. Uh, And Amazon's doing the same in Amazon Web Services. And then if you, if you think about that at the biggest level and then you roll it down into some of these smaller companies that are coming along, you have this ability for these, these really high growth software companies to come along and to really dominate their areas. And so I'm gonna assume this video is being done on Adobe or using Adobe Media Suite. Adobe really dominates the Media Suite and essentially can hold the whole subscription for all the videos that are convened in the world. Salesforce.com does CRM, ServiceNow does IT support. Atlassian here in Australia very much for developers, et cetera. And so what these companies are creating is their own little network effects, the same network effects that we saw at Google or Facebook happen before where everyone uses Adobe, so everyone has to use Adobe, so everyone uses Adobe, if that makes sense. And they don't just do that by country. They do that for the whole planet. Um, and so this really, we look at software as a service is less than 10% penetrated in that IT stack. Uh, we think it can get to over 30, potentially even over 40. Um, and so there's years of this ahead of them. Um, these stocks are highly valued because people can see this, but they're, not, uh, they're still not valued correctly because of the cash flow characteristics of what will happen as they grow through this through this shift. Mm-hmm.
1: So you've identified the, the structural growth opportunity. You've narrowed it down to a couple of stocks. You named a few just there. How do you decide how big a bet should be in your portfolio? Because if you get it right, it can be... Obviously it's, you know, some of these businesses are winner-take-all yep. and they completely crush the competition. You use, um, you know, Apple as an example with the handsets, with the, with the smartphones. So how do you, how do you, what's the process you go through and how will you build or scale back a position?
2: Yeah, so what we've got in this, in our situation right now, we call this area the digital enterprise. And so we call it companies that benefit from every digital business in the world trying to, to become more digital, if that makes sense, to shift from analog to digital. Um, there's five positions in there today, um, and it takes up roughly 15% of the fund. So 15 is a pretty big bet for the fund. Uh, normally, we these we try to find these areas of interest. They, we try to make them idiosyncratic from each other, if that makes sense. So we have some on food, we have some on outdoor active in, in, in living, we have some on um, we have some on security. Um, but in this case, a 15% bet is in one idiosyncratic bet, five stocks, and then amongst the stocks, it's really generally by market cap or standard deviation or volatility so at the moment Microsoft's the biggest probably because it has the best opportunity uh, and it's the least volatile and then the more volatile the stock is the the smaller the position size and that way we essentially manage the risks um, with the bet so we have five horses in this race I suspect one or two of them might be wrong um, and our stop losses and stuff will deal with that but the ones we're right will go up thousands of percent whereas the ones we're wrong will, will fall It can only fall 100, and in our case, we'll fall less than that because we'll we'll trigger ourselves out of the position. Mm -hmm,
1: mm -hmm. Well, yes, you sort of touched on it there. You talked about um, uh, stop... Stop losses. Yeah, stop losses. What's the decision-making process for when you want to sell a stock that you thought could be a structural winner, how do you know when it's not going to be?
2: Yeah, so it's a really good question. And I can give you a, I'll give you a, a good example in history, because I mean we're all there. In hindsight, it's really easy to see this. But um, when we talk about smartphones, for instance, right? so smartphones, 2008, 2009, you've gone to the first dinner party, someone's pulled out an iPhone, looked up on Google, and, and called you out on some story you were telling that was, that was horribly wrong. Uh, and it's all happened to us. And we all went, geez, I think I want one of those. And so the whole world was going to shift to smartphones. Uh, and at the time, we knew it would happen, but we didn't know who would win. And so we used some qualitative characteristic scores to try and work out who would win. And we really focused on things like customer perception and um, controlling shareholders in management. And that led us towards Apple. Um, but then we also had, a, we had to have a keyboard in the game. So we had BlackBerry because, remember, there was the argument between the keyboard and the touchscreen. And then we wanted an Android play. Uh, and the Android play was, for us was HTC. Um, now, what happens is uh, Apple goes up seven times for us, tick, uh, and the other two don't work out. Um, And so in our case, we have a a fall from cost or a fall from peak trigger, and it's a certain percentage level that it hits where we have to review the position. Um, And we have to defend it to the entire investment team. And on top of that, if we all decide to keep it, we can keep it, but we can only keep it for 30 days. And if it's still triggering, we review it again, review it again, review it again. And after a while you realize that actually HTC isn't gonna be the Android winner, it's Samsung. um, Or the Blackberries. you know, people don't want the keyboard, the touch screen's gonna win. And so you minimise your losses on your losers, so you'd be very disciplined on your losers. And then that pushes you more towards your winner and you let your winner run. Mm. Um, And that's our way of, A, getting, there's nothing worse than getting the structural trend right and investing in the wrong stock, because that can happen as well. And so that's our way of making sure we maximise the investment returns from what we can see logically is going to happen over a five to six year period.
1: Mm. Um, A live example that springs to mind for me is Netflix. Yep. Um, a stock which had a, a growth hiccup yep. recently in the report, it's been sold off. Um, and, and from the reading, the little bit of reading I did, which I'm sure is just an absolute fraction of the work that you've done, but I, I, I want to bring it up, it sounds like competition in that space is really heating up. So what's the process that you've gone through with
2: Netflix at yeah, this point in time? So the thesis, so let's, let's move it back. So same to the smartphone example or the Amazon example. There's, the thesis is that, and I think most people will agree with this, is that streaming TV will pass linear TV over a period of time. No different to the way digital cash will pass physical cash over a period of time. And so we are on the S-curve of streaming adoption. And so the loser here is not Netflix versus Amazon versus Disney. The loser is linear TV. So the linear is Channel 9, Channel 7, Channel 10 in 195 countries around the world. So there is literally thousands of television channels out there and a vast majority of them are going to cease to exist in the next 10 years, if the thesis is correct. Um, and so what we believe is as you shift to streaming television, you will move from having hundreds of channels to choose for to having a handful of things that you use. Um, and one of, the, one of those is clearly going to be Netflix because it has the strong lead. Um, we've been invested in Netflix for over two years. Uh, we've made well over 50, 60% on the stock, but in the last 18, 12, 18 months, it, it's gone nowhere. Um, but remember, it's part of the basket. So who else is gonna be in that handful? Potentially Disney, Amazon, um, potentially a local network like a Stan, et cetera. And so from that point of view, what we try to do is put together a basket of winners here also. And so from our point of view, we think it's Netflix, it's probably Disney. Uh, there are other ways you can play this through Roku, et cetera. And that's why. And so, from that point of view, we don't actually think it, that's the narrative today, I know, is it Disney versus Netflix. But the reality is, if everybody adopts streaming, then all that does is accelerate the S curve of streaming versus linear TV, of which Netflix should participate in. Mm-hmm. Um, clearly, the stock's obviously got ahead of itself in the last 12 months. It's, it's, it's churning, but, but we still think it's worth a 2% position in our fund, and we still think it's worth being part of that basket.
1: Yeah. Interestingly, you talk about. Um, the winners and the losers and um, of these structural changes. Is identifying who the loser is going to be, is that what feeds the short positions in your portfolio?
2: Very much so, yes. So, so in the same basket of long ideas here, so being at Netflix, Disney, potentially Roku. Uh, on the short side, we have shorted things like ITV in the UK. Um, we shorted things like ProSieben in Germany. Um, we are shorting advertising networks at the moment, so so publicist WPP, um, companies that rely on television advertising, which is clearly going to disappear over a 10-year period because we all prefer to watch stuff, we are all paying to watch stuff without ads, um, are the structural losers here, um, and that's, that's been reasonably successful also. But importantly, remember on the short side, you can only make 100%, uh, and very rarely do you, whereas on the long side, you can make well north of 100%. Mm -hmm. So you need to structure your bets accordingly. So it is additional to the bets, but the bets on the long side should far outweigh the gains we make on the short side.
1: We're partway through the US earnings cycle at the moment and caveat this discussion with, I know that you don't um, like to predict things in the short term, um, but there there has been a a bit of a disagreement in the market about um, whether we're living in a world where low interest rates are driving multiple expansion and whether multiple expansion and underlying earnings are going to, have a big disagreement bringing markets down. What are you seeing so far from the companies that, that you follow in terms of earnings and earnings outlooks?
2: Yeah, I think, I mean, look, the earnings outlooks for the majority of the economic ec- economy-facing companies are, are, pretty, are pretty average at the moment, uh, particularly autos, uh, capital goods, industrials, to a lesser extent, semiconductors. Uh, but on the flip side, you know, Microsoft just reported record results as cloud adoption is accelerating, so you can see what we're, what we're betting on, if that makes sense. In terms of where does the market go, it's interesting, I think Australia's actually been a, 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 a or the, the RBA here has been a bit of a leader. The RBA was one of the first central banks to cut rates uh, globally, and it all comes down to one bet. And, and you can pretty much make that, take that view on Australia and you can take that view and pass it to the rest of the world. And the bet is, is do you think they're cutting rates because you think we're going into a recession? Or do you think they're cutting rates as an insurance policy to make sure we don't go into a recession? Um, and at the moment, we're in the latter camp, because um, there just isn't enough evidence to suggest that economic activity is falling off a cliff. But, but there's enough, it's, it's definitely soggy out there. But if you believe that they're cutting rates as an insurance policy, then ultimately the cycle is going to extend. Um, interest rates are low, which makes equities more attractive. And in theory, earnings will accelerate at some point in the future. Uh, and that's the bet for being long equities. The argument for not being there at all is this is the start of multiple cuts and back to QE. And then, and that means it's the end of the cycle. Yeah. And we're gonna know the answer to that really in the next three to six months. Mm-hmm. And so from that point of view, we're very watchful. We are f- fairly heavily invested at the moment um, because of the low rates, but we're very watchful of, of, of that potential. And so I would argue if they had to cut more than twice, then we'd get a bit more concerned.
1: You talked a little bit about um, how you're, you're quite heavily invested at the moment. If you look at um, what you own today versus 12, say take a, I think 12 months or so ago, what are some of the biggest changes that you've made about how you position your position a portfolio?
2: Yeah, so in terms of core stocks, we haven't really changed a lot. What we do do is we find, so, so you know, the structural growth thesis that we've been working on, we've been working on for the best part of 15 years. Uh, so we have a universe of companies, it's under a thousand stocks that we essentially pick our best ideas out of. So as much as we love Netflix, for instance, we discussed, we don't have to own it mm. all the time. Sometimes it's too expensive and arguably we should have made that decision 12 months ago. Um, but we think Netflix will work again at some point in the future because ultimately this, this trend has further to run. And out of that universe, the big change for us in the last 12 to 18 months more likely is we've really pushed much harder into healthcare. Um, healthcare is a classic area that's benefiting from the emergence of 5G technology and the emergence of cloud computing. Um, and the simple way to think about this is this is a traditional industry that can ultimately update and innovate its products because of the technologies that are out there. So you can have glucose monitors that link to your iPhone that allow you to manage your, your glucose levels for a, if you're a diabetic. Mm. Uh, and you can connect that with your friends and family to, con- to prevent you going low. And your insurance company wants you to take this product because it's going to keep you out of hospital. Um, your pacemaker will talk to your hospital. Your pacemaker will talk to your doctor all through using the cloud and 5G technology. And so ultimately that will stop you having heart attacks, etc., keep you out of hospital, all those things. And so these are just traditional healthcare businesses, sort of 50, 20, 21 times forward earnings, but they're going through an accelerated product cycle. Um, and an accelerated adoption cycle because technology is enabling them to do that. And they've been very successful for us in the last 12 to 18 months.
1: A lot of these uh, services and these trends that you're talking about seem to transcend geographies. Yep. What's the geographic breakdown or how do you think about different regions of the world? Because I think people look to the US as the real growth center or the yep. um, you know, sort of the breeding ground for a lot of these great growth winners. Um, China and Asia is, you know, parts of Asia are also a bit of a home. What's the the geographical mix and where do you see different opportunities or how do you assess different opportunities at a country level?
2: Yeah, so at the country level we're pretty much agnostic um, Mm -hmm. outside of emerging markets versus developed markets. So we find lots of great companies in Europe, uh, lots of great companies we like in Europe, particularly luxury good companies Mm -hmm. or aerospace like Airbus um, is in the portfolio. At the moment, we're finding more great companies in the US, uh, mainly because of that software tilt I was talking about earlier. Um, they're all pretty much in the US. There's literally only one software company in Europe. It's called SAP, and we don't like it very much. There's one in Australia called Atlassian, but it's listed in the US also. So, so from that point of view, that's, that's tilted us towards the US at the moment. Uh, and a lot of these healthcare stocks are also in the US, although there's a couple of good ones in Europe also. So from that point of view, that's where the geographical weights have, have come out. But honestly, for what we do, and we're looking for big structural growth trends globally um, and big addressable markets, where a company is listed is is not hugely relevant. Uh, And even what sectors it is in is not hugely relevant either.
1: What's the um, most interesting or exciting uh, growth company that you've come across recently? Uh, It doesn't need to be a big position, but just something that you've gone, this is really interesting. I, I think it has a great opportunity.
2: Yeah, look, we've discussed ServiceNow here in the meeting a couple of times, which is one of those smaller software-as-a-service companies that we've spoken about. Um, That's done very well multiple times we've spoken and still has a long runway ahead of it. So that's one of those smaller software-as-a-service companies. And I think there's more good ideas down there uh, if you want to look. And I think there's actually a lot coming here in Australia as well that are currently unlisted that will come to market over time. Uh, So those areas are are pretty exciting to us. Um, Outside of that... Yeah, I mean, really, we've got some stuff in semiconductors, um, which is a little bit complicated. Uh, and we're going to be talking about it at the end of the year that I think looks pretty interesting. Healthcare, retail drinks, they're, they're the main areas we're looking at. In terms of the smaller, smaller companies, we've got a few we're working on at the moment. I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep them to myself at the moment, if that's okay. Yeah. Uh, we had a very good one for a long time in Blue Prism, uh, but we, we've exited that one, but we did very well out of that. And we've got a couple of, couple of other ones coming, but I'll, I'll keep them, I'll keep them under, keep the, powder uh, dry. under the wraps at the moment, if that's oh, okay. Well,
1: I'll hold you to that one. Um, final question. You've got an opportunity to go back to when you started uh, your investing career. Um, give yourself a few pieces of advice. Uh, what will you tell yourself? And why, why will you give yourself that advice?
2: Yeah, look, it's really important to remember, and, and, and there's, there's lots of studies, and I'll talk about some of these in a minute, but that equities is a game of very few winners and lots of losers. It just is. There's a wonderful study um, that I'm happy to add to this video for a guy called Henrik Bessenbinder. Um, he took every stock that was ever listed in the US stock market over the last 90 years. So that's 25,300 companies. And he did the buy-and-hold return of every single one. So, what would happen if you bought and hold every company that ever listed for 90 years? And what he worked out is what we know is more than half of them destroy value. In fact, go to zero. So, more than half of every stock that comes to market eventually goes to zero. Um, so, 14,000 of the 25,000 go to zero. Uh, eight, the next 8,000 only make enough money to offset what the other 14,000 lose. And you end up with just 1,000 companies that are responsible for the entire 45 trillion of wealth from the US stock market over the last 90 years. So less than 5% of all statistical observations create all the value. And then if you take the top 50 of those 1,000 companies, they make up 40% of that 35 trillion. So 50 companies out of 25,000 make up 40% of all the wealth that's ever created in the US. Mm. Um, And when you look at those companies, they're all benefiting from big structural growth trends. So obviously you get Facebook, Amazon, and Google dominate, but even if you go back in time, it's, you know, you can see it's McDonald's and quick service restaurants. It's Boeing in aerospace. It's Microsoft in software. It's, um, it's Disney in, in, in entertainment. These were the big winners, and they all benefited from big structural trends. And so the key lesson, if I could tell myself, is when you find these big structural winners, they generally keep winning for long periods of time. Um, and you should always find them and then run them. And so what a lot of investors are always tempted to do is to go look for the next thing, the next thing, the next thing, the whole time. But sometimes the, thing, the best thing you've got is actually already in the portfolio. And so it's a bit of a less is more. Um, that's the key lesson. The other thing to remember is that there's very few of these. So, so in general in your portfolio, you want to work your ways towards those, but you've also got to accept the fact that large chunks of the portfolio are not going to be these companies. And then so you need to be also very disciplined about your risk management on the other side. Uh, And that's generally what we're trying to do every day of every week of every year for the last 14 years. And that's why the process runs the way it does. Great.
1: Well, Nick, thanks for coming in. I'll um, look forward to getting a call from you when you decide to let me know about your new ideas. And we'll get you back in to have a chat about those. Cheers, James. Thanks a lot.